Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty world. Well, what advice would you give our next president? I mean, if you knew that you could write a letter to President-elect Obama, and on day one he was wind up on his desk when he walked in the Oval Office, what one piece of advice would you give him? It seems everybody has an opinion. Certainly no one here is short of them. And uh, as good Americans, we may not have all the facts, but we certainly have all the answers, right? I'm Pastor Tim, and I do want to welcome you to our brand new series for December called Letters to the Next President. And I need to just tell you up front, this is not a series about politics. And I know that's disappointing to some of you, because some of you got an axe to grind. Some of you are like, well, I got it. If you are, if you're like, you know, well, well I'm Republican or I'm Democrat, liberal, conservative, this is not the airing of political grievances, okay? That's that's not what this series is. And in fact, if you're looking for like a political message, you're not really going to find one. Don't be like, what, what is, what's the, you know, what's the buried partisan message Tim's trying to give us? In fact, not at all. Um, in fact, although I enjoy watching politics, I'm actually try to be fairly objective. Uh, in fact, this, this past fall, a few days just before the election, I still wasn't certain who I was going to give my vote to. And then on election day morning, my father was actually rushed to the hospital. And uh, unexpectedly, and uh, went to the ER. He's back home now. He's doing much better. Thank you for those of you who are, who are praying for him. Uh, but I had to rush to the hospital that morning with my mom and walk through that. And we were there till about 1 a.m. So I never actually made it back to vote. And it's like the first time in years. And so, so I come at this as kind of a neutral observer because my guy didn't win. Uh, but he didn't lose either, okay? So I want to invite you to think objectively because this series isn't about politics, red state or blue. Rather, it's a series about leadership. The kind of leadership that influences history. And more importantly, the kind of leadership that God has historically blessed. I mean, this fall was historic in many ways. Uh, obviously, we did get to witness the historical high of the first African-American president elected in our nation's history. We have to acknowledge the guy's got great teeth. I mean, that's amazing. It's a good time. Yeah, and we got to witness uh, the historical low, maybe, of really the greatest financial crisis in a generation. So as we, as we kind of close 2008, there's really this palpable mix of, of excitement and fear. You see this? Like everything seems to be changing. And whether you're conservative or you're moderate or you're liberal, I think everybody's kind of hope, hoping that 2009 will lead us in a new direction. In fact, I guess right now there are two kind of groups in, in this room. For some of you, um, this is your most excitement. I saw you've got your Obama pin in, your poster, your breath mints or whatever. Oh, you know, there's, they're making everything Obama now. And you're like, finally, the fresh leadership, you know, we need. Uh, but if you voted the other way, maybe you're disappointed, you're torn, you don't view the next, you know, administration so optimistically. In fact, I see you kind of in the back because you got your arms folded right now. You got cross, you're like, yeah, I got a piece of advice. Run for the hills, you know. He's a socialist. John Hannity was right, you know. He's a socialist. And, uh, and this is a terrible turn of events. Now, here's the deal. When two people typically are opposite ends of the spectrum politically, if one is, you know, far right, one is far left, you know what typically happens. Uh, they get married. And what I, <laughs> this series, though, is not so much about politics as it is about the kind of leadership that God blesses and historically uses to advance his kingdom and not ours. And the reality is this, whether or not you, you gave your vote to Obama, he will need our prayers and our support as never before. Because our nation is facing historical challenges really on several fronts. I mean, simultaneously, we're fighting two wars right now. We are facing this economic recession. And a lot of people suggest that, that, that you know, kind of like um, we need to kind of regain, reestablish our moral influence in standing around the world that's maybe been kind of bruised or lost of the recent years. So on January 20th, 
the world will watch as history turns a page and our next president places his hand on this book and promises to uphold the Constitution and lead our nation. So help me God. Yeah, and it's going to be an amazing thing because so help him indeed. He will need God's help, as all leaders do. Uh, you may not know it, but you are included in that group when I say leaders. In fact, this room right now is filled with leaders. I want you to look around you. Go ahead, look up and down your row. Those are leaders you're sitting next to, and you're like, really? I mean, it's not really? Uh, you may not think that, but it's true, because all leadership is really about influence. And each of you in this room has a sphere of influence in your everyday life. Some of you work maybe in a business setting, you're a corporate type, or you own your own business, maybe you're, you manage a team or your boss or you have people under you, and you lead them, and what you get paid to do, your job is to influence them. Or maybe you're a leader at home, and, and, you, and right now you're the prime influencer in your house. You change the diapers, you make the meals, you, you clean the kitchen, you wipe the noses, and it sounds menial, but really it's about influence. Because every day you are molding and you're sculpting and you're, 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 you're influencing your kids, the next, next generation of leaders. Or if you're a teacher, you're a leader, you have influence in the classroom, or maybe you're, you're a student leader or you're a leader in the athletic field, okay? Others look up to you. Maybe you're a leader in church. You serve influentially. You lead other volunteers. It makes no difference. If you have influence, even in one other person's life, you are a leader, and this book has a lot to teach us about the kind of leadership God historically has blessed. In fact, this is interesting because there is an historical book in the Bible that is all about a government in transition. It's really all about leadership. I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5, uh, page 213 in your Bibles. I kind of want to show you what I mean. 2 Samuel is the account of a young leader who rose to power. And he was hand-selected at a very young age to lead his country during a time of historic crisis. Um, his first name was not Barak, it was actually David. And I want you to consider this. When David took office as king over Israel, he was 30 years old. And the big knock on him is that a lot of people said he's too young or inexperienced to lead an entire nation. Israel was in turmoil at the time. The economy was kind of in shambles, and they were actually besieged by their enemy. They were at, they, they were at war on several fronts. Very familiar sounding, right? In 2 Samuel chapter 5, look at verse 4, it just says this. It says, David was how old? 30 years old when he became king. He was young. He did not have a huge resume when he was plucked out of the sheep pen and given the reins of power. Literally up to that point, his resume said sheep herder or, or shepherd. He was just above kind of a community organizer. He was a political novice. And the big question everybody had is, is this guy seasoned enough? to lead our nation during a time of crisis. See, Israel at this point was facing extraordinary challenges on multiple fronts. The, the previous administration was the government, actually, of King Saul. It had been marked by coups and assassinations, political infighting, and the whole nation was divided, literally. The kingdom of Israel was fractured in two. It, it, was, it wasn't red state or blue state, but the tribes, they were divided, and they desperately were looking for a transformational leader who would unify the nation together. They were also a nation at war, or should I say at wars, plural. Several hostile nations had their armies gunning for Israel. You had the, the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Jebusites. There were multiple tribes bent on attacking Israel and trying to take them out. In other words, Israel was a nation in crisis when a 30-year-old man was put into the highest office in the land. And the question was, can this guy, does he have the chops to lead us into a season of peace and prosperity? 
Now, I'm not equating David with Obama, but there are several parallels, really, in the historic challenges facing them. I mean, if you recall during the primaries, one of the, one of the big knocks on our next president was his youth and inexperience. It's like, Obama's only 47 years old. He is the youngest, fifth youngest ever to be elected president. He's got those two precious little girls, and, and we look at this picture of their family. I mean, it's heartwarming and everything. It kind of shows, like, their youth and vitality and fresh energy. But critics were like, man, he's young. <laughs> They're a good-looking family, but can a guy with so few miles on the tire steer us out of a recession. I mean, that's the dominating issue right now for, for most of us. Many of you have felt the pressure of the downturn, right? Job losses, housing prices plummeting, savings drying up. Uh, in fact, did you see this, by the way, on Tuesday? It was, it was like announced that, that we, we, we've been in recession since like last December. Like, wasn't that bizarre? It was kind of like, like, it was just kind of like, maybe it's been going on for some time. I think, you know, and it's kind of like, you didn't know this? Our next president faces the huge task of not just stabilizing our economy, but overseeing these bailouts and all of this while we're a nation at war. Again, whether or not you agree with our military involvement in Iraq, we have made extraordinary investment there in terms of blood and treasure. Over 4,000 men and women have literally sacrificed their lives serving our nation. And, and even as that winds down, we're told Afghanistan is kind of ramping up. So we're facing this, this long and protracted global war on terror. And all of this, like not to mention Iran, North Korea, and, and in the Middle East. I'll be honest, during the debates, I, like as, as the candidates kind of wrestled through all these issues, I sat there and at one point I said, why would anyone want this job, you know? It's like all these things, experienced or not, our next president has his work cut out for him. So did David. In fact, when David actually stepped into the role of king over Israel here in 2 Samuel 5, their nation was in tatters from the previous administration. So what I want to do here is really look at David's first 100 days and in office as king over Israel. Um, maybe you've heard this as you kind of watch the news. They said, well, starting January 20th, the first 100 days begin. You guys know what a first 100 days is, kind of like when they talk about that politically? That's really the period during which the new president sets the tone for how he's going to govern. Historians say you can't just tell it, you know, in the first month. Historians say you've got to give a new president at least three months to establish how their administration is going to lead in the first hundred days. And if you, if, you, if you watch that, you can tell where they're going, how they're going to govern, because they really don't just lay out their policy, but they kind of then start showing what their approach to leadership will be. And I think these first hundred days here of King David's leadership in 2 Samuel, to me, this is timely and instructive, because what David does here in 2 Samuel in his first hundred days was unprecedented in ancient culture. And quite honestly, it would be without peer in modern times as well. In fact, if I were writing a letter to the next president, I would use David's first hundred days as the template, as the inspiration and model for the godly leadership blessed and historically used by God. But remember, leadership is about influence. So whether you're a leader in business or school or at home, young or old, the question is this, how do you handle power over those in whom you have authority or influence. What's it like to be your kids if you're a leader, you know, in the home, you know? Like, you may get your way, but, like, what's it like to be, you know, you're my parent. What would your colleagues say it's like to work for uh, you, you know? You, you get stuff done, but what kind of, can they trust you? What kind of leadership does God historically trust and use to change history? David gives us some clues. So let's check this out together. Second Samuel Chapter 5, verse 4, it says, David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned how long? 40 years. Term limits were a little bit longer uh, in the ancient world. And when a new leader stepped into office, he actually does something that we still do today. What does he do? He moves 
into his new office, right? His new digs. We just saw this this past fall, right? It's amazing. I mean, amazing picture, right? Black couple moving into the White House, and we have this historic transition. They move to Washington, our nation's capital. That's whenever there's a transition in power. Same thing in 1003 BC at the time of David. Only in his time, the capital wasn't Washington. In Israel, it was, anybody? Jerusalem, okay? Look at verse 6 here. It says, the king and his men marched to Jerusalem. Skip to verse 9. It says, David then took up residence in the fortress, it's kind of their white house, and called it the city of David. And again, this is kind of a testament to the kind of leader David was historically, whether you're Jewish or Christian, whatever, it doesn't even matter. Historians say he was one of the most transformational leaders that the Middle East had ever seen at the time. And so imagine they renamed the capital after him. We're going to call it the city of David. Can you imagine if like, you know, Barack on his first day said, was this henceforth Obama land? You know, it'd be kind of like, wow, really? Uh, he built up the area around it, it says, from the supporting terraces inward. So he did a little remodeling of the White House. Good for him. And he became, what's it say actually? More and more powerful. Would you throw up verse 10 there, please? Because, and here's the key, why? Because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now, this is interesting. Maybe you just got a new position. Maybe you are a new parent. Um, if you are a new leader and you have all of these challenges facing you, here's something you would appreciate, okay? <laughs> that God was with you. Your opponents may not be with you. <laughs> your, your neighboring nations may not be with you. Your colleagues, maybe even everyone in the room isn't with you. But one thing is for sure, you would want God with you. Now, here's the question. Why was God with King David? What was it about him that caused God to actually famously call him a man after my own heart? Flip the page to chapter 6, because here's where we get our answer. This is the account of what David does first after he's crowned king. And you'll notice the title. It says, the ark brought to what? Jerusalem. And what David does here in Jerusalem in chapter 6, immediately following his coronation, that's what we would call our inauguration. This is his coronation. This is highly symbolic. Because what he does here is, I don't even know what the word would, well, undignified. I want you to think for a moment about what's going to happen on January 20th in the new year. What is that? Inauguration day, right? Have you ever, who has watched a, a presidential inauguration, right? A lot of people are going to be watching this. Um, you guys know what happens. All of our nation's power brokers and luminaries uh, come to Washington, right? You'll have, you'll, you'll have the senators and you'll even have Oprah probably will be there. And they'll descend on Washington and some of the public will make the journey to the Capitol. And what's amazing is actually CNN, CNN says that um, because of the historic nature of this presidency, that demand for tickets is unprecedented. Interest is so high that one ticket broker is actually selling a single seat 20 yards from the Capitol steps for $20,000. Okay, that's how, that's how you know, most of us are going to watch on TV. And the ceremony will begin. There'll be this crescendo, this dramatic moment when the 44th president takes this book that you hold in your hand that we're reading right now. Powerful reminder. Our nation, right, founded on the Judeo-Christian heritage. And, and he puts his hand here in tradition. He'll say, so help me God. This goes back. I mean, here's Lincoln's inauguration. It's amazing when you see the symmetry in this. This is Lincoln's inauguration. And then this is JFK's. And you'll see the same kind of image right there. Here's Carter when he came into office, followed by Reagan. Same thing there. More recently, we've had uh, Bush 41. And then we have the people's president, you know, Clinton uh, in there. And then we had Bush 43. And it's an amazing moment when the leader of the free world comes in. He puts his hand in the Bible and says, so help me, God. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And then everybody will cheer and he will step to the podium and say, 
my fellow Americans, and he will give this profound big speech, and everyone will be watching, weighing his very words to see what he has to say. And the first hundred days will begin. This is the same moment of historic drama as David steps up to Jerusalem and begins the government of Israel. And the first thing he does here in the capital city as newly crowned king is revealing. It says, the ark comes to Jerusalem. So he brings the ark into Jerusalem, the nation's capital. And some of you are like, wait, why did, why, why, why did he bring that boat? I didn't even know they still had that boat. This is not Noah's ark, okay? This is a different ark here. This is the Ark of the Covenant, okay? This is the most sacred object that the nation had. It was a golden rectangular box with two angels on the lids. And do you know why it was built? For one purpose. To hold, does anybody know? The Ten Commandments. Again, what you hold in your hands here. It was a symbol of the law under which David would govern. So in other words, we, we have our thing where, you know, it's like, here's a Bible, this is centered, this is foundational. To, David says, bring in the Ark that's going to hold God's law. Because this is a visual reminder of how God actually leads our nations as the ultimate king before he ever appointed an earthly one. And so David brings in this thing and it's weighted with symbolism because the Ark of the Covenant was literally the visual reminder of God's presence and covenant with this nation. He had said, you will be my, my people and I will be your God. Now watch this. Pick up verse 12 of 2 Samuel 6. It says, so David went down and brought up the Ark of God to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And this is where it gets weird. <laughs> because David, in his first official act as, 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 as leader, he doesn't act like a politician, but acts like a priest. <laughs> See, once a year, the high priest literally would come and sprinkle blood on top of this ark to atone for the sins of the entire nation. And this is David's way of saying, before I, do, I, I issue one decree, before I levy one tax or wage one war, I want to make a symbolic sacrifice in front of all of you right here, right now, on the steps of the Capitol to illustrate and tell you what kind of leader I'm going to be. And then he does something crazy. Verse 14. David, wearing a linen ephod, what? Danced before the Lord with what? All his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. And this is a curveball. Because if you just gloss over this, you don't, you don't understand the visual shock of what David did here. Because most people have no idea what an ephod is. You know what an ephod is? An ephod is basically underwear. I'm not kidding you. It was the, literally the holy underwear, the undergarment that the priests wore where they entered the most holy place in the temple to actually carry the ark. And in verse 14 is packed here because what David essentially did in his first act as sovereign ruler is disrobe in front of everyone, step up to the podium and say, I want to thank you for making me king, but I need you to understand one thing. I am... But in, I won't do that here. I am an ant in the shadow of the true king of heaven. It is God's hand. It is his authority under which I have authority over you. And before anything else happens, I want to surrender and submit to him so I can serve you. And this is an amazing moment because he is humbling himself and he is declaring his dependency on God. 
and he strips off his clothes, and in this case, it probably was armor because he was a military leader, and he puts on a linen ephod, which was, it's kind of like a sleeveless vest, but it's loose around the body. And what's he do? Look at the verse 14 here. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might. All eyes on him. It is time for your close-up on CNN. And... I'm serious. He takes off his clothes, puts on an ephod, and he's like, Marine brass, kick it. Come on, come on, come on. Oh, come on. Don't hang me out there to dry. Come on. I want you to imagine this. This is his inauguration in the nation's capital. And his all eyes are on this new young leader. And the question swirling is, I wonder if he has the chops to lead us. Will he gain the respect and strength to defeat our enemies? Can we count on him to lead with a steady hand into peace and prosperity? And with all these questions and expectations swirling, what's he do? He strips down to his boxers and gets his praise dance on. All right? And this is not just any dancing. He danced what? Before the Lord with what? All his might. I kid you not. Like, okay, now wait, stop. Wow, am I out of breath. Fast forward a thousand years to our world. January 20th. You're watching the inauguration. The Marine band plays Hail to the Chief. The steps of the Capitol are filled with luminaries. Obama puts his hand on the Bible, so help me God. And he steps to the podium. My fellow Americans... And he takes his coat off. He, <laughs> yeah, he loosens his tie. People are like, what the? And he starts to do it. We're like, what is he? And his t-shirt and his boxers. And he says, fellow Americans, hit it. And he does a little dance down the Capitol steps. Did you see him dance on Ellen? He does a little dance down the Capitol steps. And then they're like, what is he doing? And he makes all the way up to the reflecting pool. He's like, come on. Da, 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 da. All the way dances all the way up to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial where he then kills a cow. And spatters the blood everywhere. Now, now, what kind of president would you think he was going to make? People be like, recount. <laughs> I mean, how how would they report that over to you, Wolf? Well, today in his first official act, as our commander in chief, he stripped down to his presidential skinnies and went down Pennsylvania Avenue under clear skies. Yeah. No, I'm not not sure what it all means, Peter. But he did say he was going to bring change to Washington. Imagine the gas, the outrage. People would not have known what to do with this. Because when a leader is handed the reins of a nation's power, you expect their highest priority would be to project an image of what? Strength and dignity. Especially if his experience was a question mark. And yet David does the opposite. In a shocking display of submission before God and vulnerability before his people, he humbles himself. As a way of saying, before I am your commander-in-chief, before I issue one decree or use my authority over you, you must understand, I am under God's authority and I am your worshiper-in-chief. And I don't take one step forward without acknowledging that right now. It is symbolic leadership. He submits to God's authority prior for one thing in his administration. And guess what? The people didn't get it. They didn't get it. Look at the reaction in, in verse 16. It says, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul. Michael, by the way, is a Hebrew. It's a female name. This was David's wife. 
Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David doing what? Leaping and dancing. Damn. She what? What's the word? Despised him in her heart. This was King Saul's daughter. And she was married to David. And she sees her husband leaping and dancing as a way of demonstrating his submission and surrender before God. And she was so scandalized that she despised him in her heart. What causes someone to despise another person? Answer, when you look at what they do and say, that is so stupid. How dumb. What an, what an idiot. When they misunderstand their motives and you judge what they're doing, and from the queen's perspective, the last thing her husband should do is publicly humiliate himself before people and declare he's depending on God. We all know this. We all know this, right? World wisdom. Leaders do what? They strut. They don't, they don't dance. <laughs> Certainly not in the first hundred days. This is a time for elevation, not humiliation. You flex your muscle. You don't show your weakness. Never let them see you sweat. And certainly never let them see you in your underwear. Look at verse 20. It says, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, look at her words. You think like sarcasm is 21st century? No, not really. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls, as of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. She's like, for heaven's sakes, you were crowned king before the entire nation. You've been handed the reins of power and you're dancing in your underwear. What is wrong with you? What kind of message will this send? And the answer is a powerful one. Because this is not David being imprudent or being careless, folks. Just the opposite. He chose as his first official act a public declaration of dependence on God because he wanted to send a very clear message, a very strong message about where he would draw his authority and influence from. From God alone. He was saying, folks, my public leadership of you will flow out of my private worship of my king. Never forget, my authority over you is drawn over God's authority over me. And it's kind of funny because if you look at verse 21, he kind of basically tells off his wife here. He said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me, parentheses, you didn't elect me, rather than your father or anyone from his house when he, what? Appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. See, David was a man of conviction. He wasn't just a novice. He actually had led armies. He had excellent political instincts, as you will see next week. But before any of that came into play, he said, first and foremost, I recognize that leadership, all leadership, is distinctly a spiritual enterprise. Any authority given to any man or woman flows from the ultimate authority that comes from God. He appointed me ruler. And this is no different today. Our nation may have elected Obama president, but it's God who bestows ultimate authority. And I understand, I mean, David's context is a theocracy. The king was God's like representative. Our nation's a democracy. There's separation of church and state. But the principle's a spiritual one. It's not political. Romans 13.1 makes this very clear. Paul says, everyone must what? Submit himself to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except what? That which God has established. In other words, all moral authority in our world, whether that leader is a follower of Jesus or not, is God-ordained. He has established nations and rulers. And even when they appear to be no good or destructive, they are permitted as part of his sovereign plan of redemption. 
The big idea, folks, is that God doesn't pick our leaders necessarily, but he does permit them. The Bible makes this very clear. And it's one of the reasons we're told to pray for our leaders. It's not like, hey, honor your mom and dad if they share your political views or they follow Jesus. No, it's just honor your mother and your father. Why, why do I respect my spouse? My, my spouse isn't even a, you know, a Christian. He just says, totally, I didn't. No, you need to submit and respect him. Why? It makes no mention of political parties because David understood the overarching principle of leadership at play here. Leadership, any kind of leadership, is a distinctly, first and foremost, spiritual enterprise. Which means your leadership as a parent, your leadership as a business leader, your leadership as a teacher, as a student leader, each of us is placed in a position of spiritual influence in the lives of those around us. And your role is ordained by God. You are established by Him. The question is, how do you approach that role? See, most business, most business leaders think leadership is entirely a corporate enterprise. That's why we, we buy all the Jim Collins books, because we think leadership is about organizational theory. Teachers rely on educational theory. Parents on Oprah's theory, whatever. David says, no, 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 no. Even the highest office in the land is first and foremost a spiritual enterprise. And biblical leadership begins actually with surrendering to God so that we can actually serve others out of a posture of Humility and integrity. If you flip back a page, you get a window into David's mindset. Look at chapter 5, verse 12. It says, this is amazing. I mean, if there's a verse here, you gloss over it, but man, this is key. It says, and David knew something. He knew a secret. And David knew that who? The Lord had established him as king over Israel, not the people. And then check this. He exalted his kingdom. That's the Hebrew word for government. He exalted his government for who? For the sake of his people, Israel. It's not about you. I have called you for such a time as this. David got it. He understood leadership is a spiritual enterprise. All authority flows from God who's ruler over all, but then he delegates authority to each of us, men and women alike. And he puts us in positions of, of influence. And then the question becomes this. What is the point of your leadership? Is it to rule and to reign over others? Or is it to surrender and serve? In your position, do you rule and reign? Or do you surrender to God and serve the people? And how you answer that question, it makes all the difference in your leadership, I guarantee, at home, at school, at the office, wherever your realm, your kingdom, your influence is. David said, I, I get it. <laughs> And the only reason my government is coming to rise right now is for the sake of God's people. I am here to serve. I'm here actually to do two things. The first thing is to submit to God. I submit to you first because I am here now to serve you and I need, I need your help. He wanted to tell that to the nation in a dramatic way they will never forget. And that's why he disrobes and puts on the ephod to humble himself first before God and declare to everybody, so help me God, I am here to serve you. That's what he's saying here in, in Second Samuel. He says, I'll celebrate before the Lord. In verse 22, this is amazing. He goes on, throw this up here. I will become even more, what's the word? Undignified than this. And I will be, what's the word? Humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. See, 
See, Michael viewed leadership the way most of us view it, which is from a worldly perspective, which says you govern, you make decisions, and you earn respect by flexing your independence and your strength. Our country is founded on a declaration of what? Independence. But David had a secret. In God's government, it's just the opposite. True leadership, servant leadership, flows out of a declaration of dependence on God and surrender first. He says, I will, I will intentionally become more undignified. I'm not worried about the approval ratings. I don't care how I appear. Rather, I'm most concerned with what God thinks when he looks down upon my leadership and how I handle authority. People like Michael who view from a worldly perspective, they, just don't, they don't get it. But notice who he says does. I will be held in, in, in honor by who? The slave girls. Why slave girls? Because see, in this world, folks, <laughs> the poor, the oppressed people who are naturally in positions of submission and being ruled over, they understand real quick what kind of leadership you can actually trust. The kind of leadership that only men and God can both trust is rooted in a declaration of dependence on God. And it begins by acknowledging success starts with surrender. I'm setting aside my agenda because I want your agenda. Not my will be done, but what? Yours be done. There'd be another king a thousand years later who would take this and fulfill it and live the entire thing out. If you're going to write down something today, this is the primary principle I want David is demonstrating here. He is teaching all leaders, that is all of us, that true leadership, the kind God uses to change the course of nations, of people, of generations, flows from a posture of dependence and surrender. That's what David is publicly proclaiming at his inauguration in the first hundred days. Before he did any governing, one proclamation rode into another battle. Before he levied one tax, he knew that surrendering to God was the key to his success as leader. And folks, this is the key distinction between worldly leadership and godly leadership. Whether you are the president of a country or you are VP of sales, what kind of leader will you be? Each of us has a kingdom. Each of us has a, a realm. That's what a kingdom meant. It just literally went, meant the realm where your word holds full sway means where what you say goes. Your influence is the biggest in the room. I don't know what your realm is. Maybe you're the king or queen of your home or your, your classroom is your kingdom. Or you manage a, a division or a team or an office at work. I don't know what your realm or government is, but it's the place where what you say goes. I want to give you a couple examples of how this plays out in real life. Because personally speaking, in my life, I kind of have three realms where I provide kind of point leadership. The first is I'm a leader, you know, I'm in, in my marriage. I am called literally by God to love and serve my wife, Colleen. I'm a leader in my marriage. I'm called to be a leader as a dad. I'm called literally to serve and raise my kids and literally wield influence, be the spiritual leader in my home. And the third is I'm a leader of this church. I'm called to literally lead and, just ser and serve you. That's, that's my role. And I believe God has called me into each of those three roles. And each one carries different responsibilities. And so each morning, I put on my husband hat, my daddy hat, my church hat, and I begin the day like David in my underwear. I will, I will, okay, I'll just I'll let it go. Let it go. On my good days, when I engage as the kind of leader I'm going to be, I literally engage in stripped down, undignified surrender before God. I don't dance and do all that. That's a form of worship here in the Old Testament. That's not my, my spiritual gifting, as you could tell. Uh, the most common and accessible type of worship for me is prayer. And prayer at its heart is literally a declaration of dependency. I do this every, I did this morning. Before I start, before I start leading, make, making decisions, wielding authority, I get on my knees 
And I literally put out my hands and I say, God, I am under your authority today. And no good thing is going to come literally through me unless you show up. And I typically, a lot of times what I do is I, I commit different parts of me. I say, God, here's my heart. And right now it's selfish, it's fleshly. I surrender my heart and I give it to you. Would you fill it with your spirit? Give me what breaks your heart, Jesus. Make it clear to me. Take it, God. I can't take one step until you fill this thing. And I literally, a lot of times when I wake up, my mind is so me-centered. So I take my mind. I say, God, I seed my brain. <laughs> Would you give me the mind of Christ? My thoughts are not good enough. I say, I did this morning. I said, Lord, here's my lips. Lord, whatever I say, let it be overshadowed by what you say in your word, Father. I surrender that to you. This is what happens on good days for me when I remember to do this. And when I do that, it's funny because the days that I do, incredible things happen. But I have a problem. I'm an A-type personality. And the days that, that I don't, when I instead drop my shoulder, say, I can do this, and take the day on my own strength, not, not good. <laughs> this happened on Wednesday um, this past week. Um, my dad didn't have a great day on, on, on Tuesday night. His recovery, he's recovering, but it's slow going. And so after talking to my mom about it, I was like, I was really feeling heavy for them. And I went to sleep, couldn't stop thinking. I kind of tossed and turned and didn't sleep very well. Woke up around 5 a.m., kind of tossed and turned for a little bit, but then and just like, you know, I just got to get up and start the day. I got so much to do. I had a big day. I had, I had a bunch of meetings and stuff, and I was behind with my dad. So felt kind of heavy. But I woke up and I said, man, jeez, I got all these things. I, I got to get stuff done. And so I made the mistake at 5.40 in the morning of opening my laptop, the dark side before opening the lid of my Bible. And if you're an A-type, you know this because sometimes pausing to pray and surrender, it's the last thing you want to do. Sometimes you just want to get stuff done. Amen, some of you? So I open that thing up and I start hacking away and, it was, and I couldn't believe it because the, the first email, I'm doing these in reverse, the first email was from a close friend, a close friend here at church, our family, whose father died. He just talked about it. It's just, it's like, it just, man, ah, I felt for them. I felt the pain of this. And I was like, all right, I, I went on to the next email. The next email was from a critic. Somebody who says, you know, I don't like, and then they had a whole bullet point list. It was just kind of like, and I was like, oh, thank you, 545. Okay, next one. The next one was from a, from, when it was from a friend who actually found a lump. And all of a sudden, literally, I think it was just, you know, again, the spot I was in with my dad and all that, all that stuff just hit me like, one, two, three. And I was like overwhelmed, and it was like 650. And I was so overwhelmed, I was just like, Colleen got out there, she's coming down to make some coffee, and she's like, hey, can you take Chase to school this morning? I was like, no! I can't, I can't, I'm sorry. I just gotta, I just, I have so much to work, I'm sorry. Is that all right? I, have to, I gotta work. And so she's like, okay, you know. So I got a dress and everything, and I head out, and it was the morning with all the frost. So I go up to my beater truck, and I got frost across the windshield. I'm like, son of a gun, of course, right? And literally, I get in there, and I'm like, okay, you know, I gotta... Turn on the defroster, and of course, it takes about 15 minutes because the defroster's crappy. And literally, I'm sitting there for 15 minutes. I'm like, I can't believe this. I can't listen to radio. So I, so I literally start, got my little, you know, iPhone, start doing it. It's like, you know, wait a minute. And I see a Bible literally sitting on the seat next to me. I carry around a Bible in the truck. I thought it would help me get out of tickets. It doesn't. <laughs> but sitting there. And the heater's blowing, and I'm overweight, and literally it's 6, it's 6 a.m. I just like, okay, just... And I start reading, actually, through one of the Psalms of David, which says, you're my refuge, and you're my strength, my fortress, my shield. I just like, Father, I'm sorry, I just, I need to... 
And it took a good 15 minutes, mainly because I couldn't see out the windshield. And it was like this wave came over me, and literally I just started crying. I was like, Jesus, I can't do this today. I can't do this. And it was literally like God said, I know. Thank you for admitting it. And it was like this wave came over me, and literally I opened my eyes, and I knew exactly what I had to do. I, I, I got out of the car. I literally go back into the house, and, and Chase and Colleen are still standing there. I'm just like, I go, Chase, I'm, I'm sorry. Let, let me take your, you to school today. And she said, she said, you can. I said, why not? And she said, because mommy said you have a lot on your plate. <laughs> I said, Chasey, I, Chasey, I do have a lot on my plate, but I want to... Because I have a lot on my plate, I need to take you to school because you need to understand no matter what happens at work, you're on my plate today. This is the most important thing I can do right now. And so we walked to school together. And then I went to work and I realized as I put my stuff down that no matter what else I did that day, what decisions we made, what hills we took, no matter what I could work on or accomplish, that was leadership. It's not because I'm a great dad, but to the degree that I'm dependent on my father for daily direction, is my fathering worth following? You're catching this? I thank God for that crappy defroster. Because most days I just want to drop my shoulder and plow through it and get some other advice and just, you know, take under my strength. Daily worship, daily prayer. This is a habit of the heart for all effective leaders, as David demonstrates here. Look, we all have days that will bring us to our knees. But if we begin the day on our knees, we have a much better chance of not just surviving, but actually thriving and adding value to the lives of those people who are in our care. Are there any other A-type people here today? Raise your hand. You just confess that. Okay, great. You come forward. This will be the battle for us because for a go-getter-driven personality, if you're a leader like that, it is difficult because it flies in the face of our frantic efforts to prove that we're self-sufficient, strong, and independent. Remember, the whole nation is founded on a document called the Declaration of Independence. But biblical leadership, the kind of leadership that God uses to change people, nations to change history, is founded on a different declaration. A declaration of what? dependence. Because in worship, we have to admit we're spiritually impotent. That, you know, without inviting God into your day tomorrow, Monday morning, mom, Monday morning, dad, the vision manager, no matter how successful you are by worldly standards, tomorrow's wasted. It's a waste. In many ways, the greatest act of spiritual leadership is the man or woman who knows how to get down on their knees and fight like a man. Husbands, is this how you lead your family? Bosses, managers, is, is that how you begin your day? Or mom, moms, do you begin your day on your knees before you're off and running with the kids? Remember, our public leadership of others always flows out of our private, the quality of our private worship before God. Jesus constantly withdrew to solitary places to meet with his father. He did it for filling, for refueling. On the eve of important decisions, he did it after a day of exhausting ministry to others. It's the foundation that authentic leadership, biblical leadership, is built on. And it's counterintuitive. <laughs> It's, counter, it's paradoxical. Because as a nation, it's a declaration of independence. We can do it! But our leadership is to be founded on a daily declaration of dependence called worship. Prayer in your underwear. The confession that I can't do life in 
man, if I let go of Father's hand, today's a waste. Had a cool moment um, last weekend, and God in his mercy, sometimes it works. <laughs> had a cool moment last weekend um, before our, we went out to serve the homeless on the streets of New Brunswick. I got up early, I was having coffee in the kitchen. No one else was up yet, and I did pause. Because I said, you know what, this isn't just handing out coats. We could look at it that way. We're distributing jackets to needy families. It's a humanitarian work. Oh, it's more than that. It is first and foremost a spiritual enterprise. So literally, I was in the kitchen. No one else was up. I was like, okay. And I had my coffee. And, you know, I just started praying. I was just like, Lord, you know the families we're going to serve today. You know the homeless people, Lord, who are in need of your care, Father. We want to touch. And I started praying. And I did it for like, like 10 minutes. You ever have that thing? Like you feel like, I think there's someone next to me. And it isn't the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, usually my dog comes up and actually starts doing it in my ear. And it's like, you know, chew away. So I start shooing the thing away. But then I feel it's like, oh, it's not a dog. It's, oh. It's my little boy, Dell, you know, in his, in his speed racer, you know, pajamas, right? And he's literally standing right next to me about two feet away. And he goes like this. He goes, what are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I'm asking Jesus for help today. He goes, why do you need help? <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm not going to get off of this easy. And literally... You know, I was just going to go, well, you know, you just got to put it. I just go, because daddy can't do it on his own. Son, I can. I need Jesus. He got quiet and he said, can you make waffles? (laughs) You know, I just kind of, I want you to freeze this moment though right here. Because in the rearview mirror of Benefit of Hindsight, I realized that this moment will be one of the most profound lessons I will ever pass along to my son. I hope he never forgets that. It won't be a lecture. I hope when he grows old, he'll say, I remember walking into the kitchen. <laughs> my dad in his underwear on his knees. He did that a lot. <laughs> more and more as he got older. And he's always asking God for his strength to fuel his Parents, listen. So much of spiritual leadership is caught, not taught. It's not the lectures. It's not, it's not, it's not watch Veggie Tales. It's about modeling dependency. On your father to your kids. Let them see you do it. As David modeled it for his people. Because the greatest influence you will ever, ever have. Godly leaders know this. And because David declared his dependence, he proved he was a leader worth following. You know what you look for in your leaders? You look for this. Shiny knees. Shiny knees. A man or woman who's not too afraid to get on their knees or dance in their underwear. In fact, if I had one piece of advice for our next president, it would be this. Follow David's example in 2 Samuel. Before you do anything else, sir, before you make decisions as our executive-in-chief, before you wage wars as our commander-in-chief, get on your knees. And in private, would you be our worshiper-in-chief? Would you humble yourself before God? Because God says he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to who? the humble. Declare your dependency on God, Mr. President. Let us, your people, see that you are a man who is not too proud to look to a source greater than yourself for wisdom and strength. That's my advice to the next president. What's yours? If you had one thing to tell him, what would you write? Well, here's your chance. We actually set up a website for this series at www.letterstothenextprez.com where you can log on today after the service and type in your one piece of advice. And I want you to invite you to do this. It's real simple. I'm going to post my letter now to the next president kind of live right here. 
Again, lettersnextpres.com, and you just click. You click right over here, read and write a letter. And the cool thing is, is you just literally can do it anonymously, but you just use your first name. I'm just going to use my name. And um, what I'm going to do here is you'll see at the bottom, it, it's literally, you don't need anything. Um, you'll just see it. Just type your name in if you want to put your email, whatever. And, um, and you put yours in, and then it goes out to the world to see. Here's mine. It says, Dear Mr. President, I posted this this morning. Congratulations on your election as 44th president of our nation. As you step into the Oval Office this January, I can only imagine the pressures and expectations you'll face on day one. Our church is praying for you. Although I doubt each of us gave you our vote, we all want to offer you something more important, our prayers. We're sending these letters to encourage you, sir. Although our nation is founded on the Declaration of Independence, let me encourage you to kick off your leadership with a declaration of dependence. When David became king over Israel, he humbled himself before God before he did anything else. And at his inauguration, David danced in his underwear. I won't go into details. You can read it yourself in 2 Samuel. My point is this. Don't be afraid to get on your knees, Mr. President. It may appear foolish in the world's eyes, but the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So lead us boldly with humility and submission to God because that's the key to our respect and trust. Remember, in God's government, success begins with surrender. We'll pray daily for you, sir. I hope you'll pray daily too. We'll be looking for shiny knees. Pastor Tim, you hit save and your letter will go up there for the world to see. That's my advice. That's my letter. What's yours? Today, this afternoon, take 20 minutes. Go to letterstothenextpres.com and share your thoughts. And after this series is over, what we're going to do in 20 days, we're going to send the link to the White House along with a cover letter to it. And I have no idea if Obama's going to read it. I'm thinking he has a few more important things on his plate. But even if he does, I, I kind of doubt he's going to you know, dance down the Capitol steps in his boxers. No president's going to do that. Clinton, maybe. Probably not Obama, though. I don't... <laughs> it, but that you got the invitation. Letters to the next You put your, your advice there. But how about you? How about your leadership tomorrow morning? What's God challenging you to do through David's example? If you're a teacher, would you be willing to take a few minutes in your classroom this week on your knees before your students arrive praying for them? You want to be an effective parent? Make a declaration of dependence every morning, mom. Every morning, dad. Spend time with your father before you try to father those kids. Remember, leadership, all leadership is a spiritual enterprise. And in God's government, public success always begins with private surrender. Let's pray together. Father, we, are, um, we humble ourselves before you and we actually ask, Lord, as your people, for your kingdom to come and your will be done on this earth. Father, um, we all have different ideas of how that may come politically, but we know salvation doesn't come through politics. Salvation, Lord, you had a bigger idea, not just lower taxes, you canceled our debt spiritually, Father. So we just thank you. Lord, a thousand years after your man David ruled over Israel, the true king of heaven came down, not with pomp and circumstance, but in humility. And Jesus died for all people. So Father, right now, we just, we just humble ourselves before you, Jesus. You're a leader worth following. Your life, Father, is what we aspire to. But we need you. We need your spirit. So would you fill every man and woman, every mom and dad, every business executive, every plumber in the room, Father, every teacher, every person, Father, who you have given influence to, would you anoint their leadership this week? Prepare us, Father, as a nation that we could be your people. And we ask that in humility and dependence on you. And all God's people said.